Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia, and the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Swick Enterprises, and we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home, Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia Find us on the web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. It's at this time I'd like to introduce my special guest, co-host, is a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia and cardist collector and historian that has one of the most advanced collections in the country of three World War II items, in particular of the 1925 Pottsville Maroon. Our friends of both the magazine and our podcast, I'd like to welcome once again, guest co-host, Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Bob. How you doing? It's good to be back on and really looking forward to this show. I think it's going to be a great one. Thanks for filling in. Uh, as a uh, aside, Joe has sent his regards from the uh, country of Qatar, where he is there for the other football game. He's at the World Cup for the next uh, week and a half or so. So he's set to say hi to everybody. And again, thank you for filling in uh, his semi. No worries. Hope he has safe travels. And I was wondering if he was going to try to get over there. I know he went last time. Yeah, he he was going for uh, last time something happened and then he never made it. Mm. Or I think COVID hit or whatever. And then uh, now Mm. he made the plans. I thought Talked to him last night out of Calgary when he was he was waiting for a flight. So he said to say hi to everybody, and he'll be back in a few weeks. Well, Jeff, we have a very interesting show coming up. But before we get started with our special guest, we're going to talk a little bit about the 1959 Bazooka Football Card Set, a set I've uh, owned several cards over the years from, and uh, a very very difficult set to complete in any condition. And I'll hand off to you on it. Uh, great set. Great set, Bob. 
uh, one of my favorite non-mainstream sets. Um, I just love everything about this set. You know, those that aren't familiar with it, don't know it much. It is a tall boy set. You know, we always talk about the 1965 top set being, you know, the tall boy set, but people forget that the 59 Bazooka set, and Bazooka, of course, was owned by Topps, was another tall boy set. Now, it was distributed differently than their mainstream sets. The Bazooka set, you know, roughly the same size as the tall boys on 65, kind of right around five inches tall, you know, a little over two inches wide. But these were distributed on the bottoms of Bazooka gum boxes um, in the... 50s and 60s, you know, Topps was selling, obviously, their their Penny Bazooka gum with Bazooka Joe comics in it, but they also would, you know, distribute larger boxes that had, you know, 20-piece or 25-piece, you know, pieces of gum in it, and they were big enough that you could yep. put a tall boy on the bottom um, of the boxes, and that's how the 59 bazookas were distributed. Um mm-hmm. Great set. Um, love the clean, simple design. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of nice, simple designs, and I love the design on the bazooka set. The player images are big, obviously because it's a tall boy. You know, almost all of the shots are of players from kind of the waist up, so you see their jerseys, their jersey numbers. You know, nice big headshots, a lot of detail, very colorful. Uh, just love the look of those, um, you know, of those cards. They've got a, you know, team logo on the bottom, their name and and their, uh, you know, their affiliation, their team, and and that's pretty much it. And there's nothing on the backs; they're blank backs. Um, so real simple, easy design, but just love them. And as you mentioned, hard, hard to find and hard to complete as a set. You know, one of the things the, that um, Go ahead, Bob. No, I was going to say, the one thing I do um, remember, the 71 Bazooka football card set, uh, which I did buy a few uh, boxes. I do distinctly remember buying the boxes, but I cut the cards from the back. I didn't keep the backs pristine, not realizing they would be uh, so valuable down the road. But I did cut up the cards off the back. The 59 Bazooka set, I was only one year old, so obviously I I had no recollection of it whatsoever until years later. And according to my notes here, I didn't actually see one uh, in person until a show back in 1988 back in Connecticut. Hmm. And uh, that's pretty pretty interesting. I didn't purchase one until the late 90s. And then I bought a couple, and I ended up selling them, trading them over the years. All right, back to you. Yeah, no, very, very very hard to find for whatever reason. Um you know, Top slash Bazooka had put out a baseball set earlier in the spring of 59. And I, I believe that was the first time they had put sports cards on a Bazooka box. And apparently it was right. such a hit that they actually added more baseball players to the boxes. And then as they got close to the fall, they decided to do a football set as well. Um, same exact look and feel for the most part as the baseball ones. But, you know, for whatever reason, the football ones are, are I would say, much, much more difficult than, than the baseball ones are. Um, and there's only 18 cards in the set, so it's not like a very big set. But yet, you know, you right. talk to many advanced collectors, and there's just cards in that set they've never seen. 
right? Which is, right. Um, right. you know, which is interesting uh, to say the least. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very difficult set. And again, trying to find them um, more so raw than graded, because I really don't mm-hmm. see what the advantages of, of getting them graded uh, because you know it's unless you got a pristine box that you cut it from, and you're not going to get a, a high grade on it one way or the other. And and again, it's not the type of set, in my opinion, that should be high graded in the first place because it, it saw a lot of use over the years. And how many of those boxes actually survived over the years is, is minimal to say the least. So uh, it's a fascinating set. It's real fascinating to me. Uh, collecting wise, it's, it's just a fascinating set overall. And again, it's uh, I know a lot of um, team set collectors have uh, uh, you know one or two cards off of that set that they're trying to collect for their team uh, uh, team player uh, yeah. collections and yeah. individual player uh, like a Unitas or whatever. Just yeah, a there's, there's um, at least one card, even though it's a small set. There's at least one card of a player from all twelve NFL teams from that era. So. If you're collecting, yeah, yeah. you know, team sets, there's at least there's at least one 59 bazooka that you're going to have to snag. Um, you mentioned grading these things. The um, the cards on the back of the boxes do have a, a dashed line around them to help, you know, guide, you know, kids, primarily, I'm sure, in 59, with cutting them off the box in straight lines and trying to make them look pretty good. That has caused a challenge with, Grading these cards, um, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of inconsistency with how these cards are graded. You know, if you look at the PSA, um, what they say about their hand cut cards, if they do have some mm-hmm. sort of a guide, some sort of a you know um, box around or dash lines around it, in order to get a numerical grade, you're supposed to either have cut outside of those lines all the way around, or at least some part of that dash line needs to be shown on all four sides, and it has to meet size requirements. But I can tell you from experience, there's a lot of cards out there that you look at and you say, well, based on that criteria, this should not have gotten a numerical grade, and it was given one. Or by that criteria, you say it should have gotten one, and it wasn't. So a lot of confusion about, you know, how to get these things graded, you know, kind of, you know, submit or beware if you have, um, you know, raw bazookas and you go and try to get them graded. You might get a surprise with the results. Well, you know, again, everybody knows my feelings on grading and graded cards, but at the <laughs> yeah. same time, I, I just don't understand the logic of why mm-hmm. you would want to grade a 59 bazooka or 71 bazooka football card. I just don't get it. And if anything, I would want to collect if I had unlimited funds, try to find uh, the actual full, complete box uh, flat yeah. and collect them that way. You know what I mean? Almost like a 78 Slim Jim set uh, where, you know, it's challenging to collect the entire box uh, as compared to just the disc on the back at the same time. So uh, it's, it's an interesting yeah. set, and it's got a lot of, a lot of possibilities to it. Uh, I've always liked the bazookas. Uh, the closest I was, ever was was the 71 bazooka set, and then I just kept a few cards out of that uh, over the years because it was just became too mm-hmm. difficult to try to find them one way or the other. And, again, 71 bazooka was another uh, 
not to take away from the 59 bazooka, but there are more 71 bazookas around than there are 59. Uh, but again, oh, yeah, a lot, cla- a lot more. 59 bazooka is just a classic, classic football card set. And given the time frame of 1959, uh, where and a, you know pro football was really coming into play with the AFL in 1960, uh, the the history behind the set on top of it is just uh, amazing to me. And again, I I've always liked, as you know, oddball food type issues, uh, candy issues, and that's just that just says it all. Has all the uh, the criteria for just a, a classic football cards so. yeah and, and there is a couple of um, errors in the set one was corrected so Charlie Connerly who was QB of the New York Giants um, right there is also a version of that card that has him listed with the Baltimore Colts so we also know because of that that they did multiple runs and that might be why some of the cards seem to be short prints um, you know that, that seem to be a lot harder we don't know how many runs they did of Prince, but we do know that error was corrected. Um, so that that's mm-hmm. a difficult card to find is the error card for Charlie Connerly that has him with the Colts. Um, the other error was not corrected. So poor Woodley Lewis played for the Cardinals, Rams, first uh, on the inaugural Cowboys or inaugural uh-huh. team of the Cowboys. Tops could never get his name right, so they they called him uh, they called him Woody. On this 59 bazooka card, his name's Woodley, Wood L-E-Y. Um, I think in 58 on his regular card, they called him Woodley, but they left the E off. They called him Woody on another card. I think it was until 1960 that they actually spelled his name right. Um, so that was um, never corrected, probably because they, <laughs> they didn't even know <laughs> that it was spelled wrong, it's my guess. Um, which is pretty funny. I always get asked, like, which card's the hardest one to find, and it, that's pretty clear. It's Tom Tracy of the Steelers, you know, Tom the Bomb, as they yep. used to call him. That yep. card is just impossible to find. Um, I was fortunate enough to pick one up, and I did complete this set probably eight years ago. Um, but that card, I've only ever seen, I think, one or two others in the last decade come up anywhere. Right. It's, it's just really right. hard to find for whatever reason. I've never seen it except for, and I and I don't remember the auction that it was in, and I remember we talked about it years ago. Uh, it was coming to auction, and it, and I'm sure there's going to be a bidding war between people completing and trying to complete the, the complete set and uh, Steelers team sets collectors uh, in a in a strong battle for that for that card. I have never seen that card at any show I've ever attended, in I don't know how many years. You know, almost 40 years of going. Uh, just truly amazing, Kurt, to say the least. But uh, and again, yeah, and it was not. Go ahead. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say, and it is. It was not um, in the recently. There was um, a near complete set that got broken up and auctioned off. And and duly noted was there was no Tom Tracy in that near complete right. set that was yeah. broken up. There was a the error there the. Um, the error card of Connerly's that was corrected was in there and his, his other one. But and Groza, who's another tough one, was in there, but no Tom Tracy. Yeah, exactly. But it has it just has all the flavors to a, a great classic football set. It's uh it it's a great set. And again I always I I the times I held the type cards in there 
uh, I just said, uh, I'm never going to put this set together. I'd rather see you go to, you know, sell it to somebody who's actually trying to pursue the set or a team set at the same time. Um, but, but it's a, it's a classic set, real classic set. The other, um, we're totally unrelated to it though. The, um, San Giorgio, San Giorgio flip chart, mm-hmm. uh, card set from that year. I have never seen one ever. Uh, I don't even remember seeing any in auction over the years. I don't. I don't know how it exists. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> that's another amazing set from 1959 that I, I virtually don't. I don't know anyone. Um, maybe, maybe, possibly one person that I know of that may have one mm-hmm. of them. But I've never seen them. I've never seen them yeah. at all. And I, I believe I, they're all Redskins, right? Are they all Washington yep. Redskins? Yeah, I've only seen yep. the LeBaron, and that was just an image from someone who has it. I've never actually seen yep. it come up on eBay or at auction anywhere. No. You know that that one's impossible as well. That's a great trip down memory lane with the 1959 Bazooka set, and uh, just a great classic football card set to say the least. Our special guest That's is little. here, and, and I get to. Introduce them to our audience, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Our special guest tonight is a pediatric de- dentist. He's an undergraduate of the University of Cincinnati Dental School. Uh, he, he, I'm sorry, uh, undergraduate from the University of Cincinnati. He attended dental school at Ohio State, did his residency at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He's married to his high school sweetheart of 30 years, Peggy, and has two wonderful children, John and Isabella. He lives in his hometown enjoying his family career, golf, and the hobby. He has collected since he was six years old when he started dumpster diving with his grandfather, finding old toys, guns, clothes, beer cans, and much more. They would hang out at flea markets and swap meets. His grandfather could sell anything, and he loved junking with him. He's collected 19th century football and baseball since high school. His first 19th century piece was a pair of fingerless baseball gloves. However, his passion is 19th century football and baseball and digging up 19th century football history. At this time, I'd like to welcome our special guest to our show this evening, Mr. John Genantonio. John, welcome to the show. Don't hear John. Can you hear me now? There you are. Yeah. Okay. 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 I tried out a new pair of headsets. I just wanted to say uh, thanks, Bob and Jeff, for hosting me. It's it's quite an honor speaking with the two two of you. Um, you know, such wonderful, knowledgeable guys, football historians and collectors. Um, I'm not worthy, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, remember, you're talking to a dumpster <laughs> diver here. Hey, we all started that way. I suspect. <laughs> You're more than worthy, but let's start off by if you could tell our audience how you became interested in football and collecting. Sure. Um, I think, you know, my dad and my grandfather, they were huge influences on my life as, as most, most guys. And uh, my dad was always very supportive of all aspects of my life. He assisted me with my uh, beer can uh, collecting when I was younger, my GI Joes, my baseball and football cards. Um, he was a season ticket holder of the Bengals, uh, going back to their inception in 1868 when Paul Brown bought the, brought the team to town. And uh, 
I've been a lifelong uh, Bengals fan for better or for worse. Um, um, before I was in elementary school, my grandfather would, he would take me junkin. And, uh, um, when we dumpster dive, it was mainly me dumpster diving and man, the things that I found in those dumpsters, you know, we were behind, uh, you know, stores, uh, sporting goods stores, toy stores. And, you know, I guess things that people returned back in the day, they didn't have a problem throwing a gun away. And I dug out guns and GI Joes and, uh, it was just amazing. Um, but I think that's where I got bitten by the bug, you know, hanging out with my grandfather, um, hanging out at flea markets. He was like the, the, the Sanford son of our family. You know, he, he found everything and he could sell anything, you know. So um, in my teens and 20s, I gravitated towards the College Football Hall of Fame. Um, we had it here in town. It was close to where I lived. I'd ride my moped there and I would pester the heck out of Pat Quinn and Ken Stevens. So Pat was the curator. Ken was one of his associates and Ken's still around and we do talk on occasion. Um, I love looking at their early football ephemera, the programs, the tickets, the, the pictures, the 3D objects were just, just amazing to me. The old jerseys, uniforms, balls and trophies. And I think that's when I fell in love with the evolution of football. And that's kind of how I've collected i've collected with the idea i want to get earlier i want to find the earliest document the earliest scrap the earliest element of football um so you know that's that's kind of where my passion is at least right now that's that's incredible wow. john and you are definitely worthy of being on the show <laughs> you could be running the show too um, no. your stuff is awesome i've seen your i've seen some of your stuff and you just have jaw-dropping things and it's kind of interesting to hear how you got and gravitated back to the 1800s. It sounds like it all kind of came out of, um, you know, hanging out at the Hall of Fame. Is that really the, yeah, the way I mean, transition from kind of, you know, the sure. kids collecting stuff, but then move into the 1800s? Is that really the, how yeah, it all happened? Yeah. And, you know, they weren't as um, concerned with protecting their artifacts. And I would see some of these helmets, just just dry up and fall to pieces, and it was so sad. Um, um, back in the day, they just didn't do that. I would see their jerseys just hanging on hangers, and I would see the hangers literally tearing through the material because the material was so so old. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, I've always collected with the mindset of, hey, I want to pass this along. I want to pass um, these relics along. I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to take care of it, you know. So, um, I think that's a very important part of collecting, you know, taking care of the next generation of collectors. I agree with you 100%, John. I mean, it, again, if we don't preserve the history of the of the game or anything that, you know, that is historical in nature, um, it's lost forever. And I, I just, you know, this guy, this this is just an aside. I, I I'm just kind of shocked in a way how it took so many years for football to really realize its history and to start yep. preserving more of it. You know, you know what I mean? It just seems like, it, it, to me, it's almost like the past 25, 30 years that there was any urgency about it. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't I know agree. if it's me or, you know, it's no. just, I, I'm just floored by what, what, I, what I've seen. For example, and, and again, this is on the side, Yale University cleaned out their um, storage area where they had old football programs from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and basically they just wanted to throw them in the dumpster and get rid of them. And a couple of people um, locally there in New Haven just said, what are you doing? I mean, this is, this yeah. is, this is you know, historical stuff. So, well, uh, that New Haven Historical Institute, Society, they're, 
Yeah, that New Haven mm. Historical yeah. Society, they're pretty amazing. So uh, I'm glad somebody saw that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it was just shocking to me when I, when I heard it type of thing. But, uh, again, it's, 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 it's amazing, and, and, again, it needs to be preserved for its historical value, which leads us uh, to our next question here. <clears throat> and seeing the stuff you have, which is just mind-boggling to me and to Jeff, uh, we're going to look at, try to examine your six top items uh, in your okay. collection, and you, and you, brief, you briefed, them, briefed us on it before, um, and I, I just read it about five, six times just trying to digest it uh, because it's just incredible history there. So if you could, the best you can, describe to our audience sure. um, your six top items in your collection. And I feel really compressed for time. I feel like we could do this over three different discussions, um, but I'll do my best. Um, so I use Park Take Davis. Uh, We've got, we got plenty of time. So. Okay. I use Park Davis, um, noted 19th century football historian, to help me kind of organize my collecting. So he um, named different periods of 19th century football. So prehistory, which was before 1869, the pioneer period, 1869 to 1875, the period of American Intercollegiate Football Association, 1876 to 1893, and then the period of the Rules Committee and Conferences, uh, 1894 to 1904. So I tried to pick um, ephemeral items uh, um, from those from each period to 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 show my my collecting interests. So I'll start off with um, I'll call it 1A and 1B. So I've got two paper documents. So um, you're gonna you're gonna see um, that I'm mainly talking about Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in everything that I'm presenting, but that's, that's kind of where intercollegiate football, it was kind of the center for, you know, up until the early 1890s anyway. So um, yes. football um, at universities was an intramural sport, you know, kick a ball, you know, down a long field and try to get it over a line, um, probably all the way up until, you know, right around the early 1870s. And my first document is, from 1820. So this is a student at Yale University, and he is the treasurer of their dorm. Back then they called them houses. So in this document, um, multiple pages, um, but it's kind of like a ledger. So he's got, he's got all the guys that lived in the dorm, and he's collecting their dues. And then he's taking that and buying supplies for the dorm. He's buying candles. He's buying uh, wood. He's buying um, lamp oil. But some of the entries um, multiple entries, he's buying footballs and he's buying bladders. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm thinking, this, this doesn't make sense. And it's, it's foot dash ball. Okay. It's not F O O T B A L O. But I'm looking at this and I'm digging around. I'm like, well, where the heck is he getting these things from? And he's literally buying them from the hardware store on campus. They hmm. had to have been uh -huh. imported. Um, but I know that they were using that to play intramural football and they were using that to play kind of that, that entry-level game where the freshmen took on the sophomores. It's kind of like a rite of passage. Um, so that's kind of my earliest document. I, I think I've read that, um, you know, the term football was used back in as early as the 1770s at Harvard. I haven't found anything that early, but I'm, I'm still looking. Okay, so fast forward. I've got oh. one more document here. Are you okay if I, if I keep going? Yeah, keep, keep rolling, rolling, man. You're awesome. Okay. 
fast forward to 1863. Okay, so now I've got a letter, a four-page letter. Um, this kid, this uh, junior, is writing his family. Um, he's homesick. He can't wait to get home for Thanksgiving. And he's uh, talking about it, you know, kind of early in the semester and, and how the um, sophomores are hazing the freshmen. So football has been banned at Harvard in, since 1860, but the hazing is still going on. The beatings, the, the, um, the taking advantage of the sophomores is still going on. And he talks about his day when, when he was a freshman and he played in a game and they called it Bloody Monday. I mean, he literally writes in here, Bloody Monday. So the first Monday of the semester – you were required as a freshman to take on the sophomores in a football game on the Delta. So that's like hollowed grounds. In baseball, um, you know, that's like the Elysian Fields or that's like the, the Boston Common, you know, and football was actually played on the Boston mm-hmm. Common too. But, but he's talking about how in the game, the freshmen, they really didn't know other freshmen. They didn't really know who their classmates were. And somehow the sophomores corralled them and – uh, they they had the freshmen beating up on each other because they didn't they thought they were beating up on the sophomores and the sophomores were sitting on the fence drinking a beer watching them beat each other up. It's just hilarious. So, <laughs> so that game, freshmen taking on the sophomores, you know, it wasn't about getting the ball over the line or getting the ball through a goal. It was about beating up your opponent. And you know, they would come out of the game with bloody eyes, uh, um, bludgeoned shins, torn shirts, uh, broken bones, and. I just think that's hilarious how he said, you know, in my game, you know, it was so, it was so physical. We were beating up on each other. You know, they didn't even know each other. So um, at the end of those games, those Bloody Monday games, the sophomores and the freshmen, they did get together for a dinner, and they actually sung Old Lang Syne. So kind of like saying, okay, you made it. You made it through the hazing. Um, so they called that rush, and that term rush is still used today, obviously, you know, for fraternities and sororities. But – that's kind of where that, that right. term uh, um, took hold, if that makes any sense to you. No, that's really cool. And I've read a little bit about the Bloody Mondays, and it's so awesome you have a letter that describes one of those games. I mean, have you ever seen another one of those? Have you ever seen anything that looks like what you have anywhere else? No, I, I haven't. I, I'm, I'm sure they exist. I'm, 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 I'm sure that um, there's other documents out there. But um, I'm really, I'm really, um, I think it's, I'm really happy to have it. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where somebody really didn't know what they had. And, and if you don't really educate yourself and know the history of the game, um, you know, you kind of like, yeah, there's another, you know, piece of paper that's with scribble on it. You don't really even know what it is. Yeah, no, that's All right. you were to your point, John. Um, yeah, I mean, as you learn the history of football, you start to see things that other people are glossing right over, right? Because they don't have the context to understand what they're reading. And they just read it as, oh, okay, this is just an interesting discussion of an event. And, and sometimes it's more than that. So go, go ahead, proceed. Well, these, these early elements of the game, they all lead up to what we play today. So, I, you know, they're played on – you know, American soil, I think they're important. You know, I think some people would say, oh, well, that was a soccer game. It's really not football. Well, football um, evolved from rugby and association ball. So in my opinion, it is football. And I know there's plenty of arguments, when did the first football game occur? But, you know, you can't have the first football game without having the elements lead up to it, if that makes any sense. That I agree with you 100%. And I think that's what that sometimes is lost in the arguments about it. You know what I mean? 
So uh, that, yeah. that's an excellent point. Forward now to the pioneer period, and you know, I'm 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 always looking for like iconic moments in those different periods, and obviously one of the iconic moments um, in the pioneer period, which begins in 1869, is the uh, the Princeton Rutgers game. And I know this is a passion of yours, Jeff. So I'm, I'm sure we'll have a, a lot to discuss here. But but how did how did they get to that natural rivalry, Princeton versus Rutgers. How did they get to that game? And how they got to that game was a baseball game that was played in 1867. Um, it was quite common, 1850s, 1860s, for college to play intercollegiate baseball games, but it wasn't for intercollegiate football games. So one of the players on the 1869 football team was the captain of the baseball team in 1867. His name was Billy Buck. And one of the players on the Rutgers football team in 1869, his name was William Leggett, and he played on the baseball team also. So in 1867, Billy Buck's baseball team beat Rutgers, William Leggett's baseball team. Um, I don't know. I think it was something like 42 to, to 4 or 44 to nothing. And that didn't sit well with Leggett, and he wanted vengeance. So in 1869, he challenged uh, – Princeton to a football game and the captain of the team, William Gummier, um, you know, uh, accepted the challenge. So I'm, I have seven CDB size um, photographs. So um, kind of like uh, about this, a little larger than the Mayo set. So CDB is a small cabinet. These are graduation mm-hmm. photos, 1870 Princeton football player, Princeton students, but they played on the football team. So in this, in this set of graduates from 1870, um, I've got the, cap- the, the, the inciting incidents for the football game, Billy Buck, and then I've got the captain of the, um, of the Princeton team, uh, William Gummier. And, um, you know, to me, just to have any type of scrap from, or any type of, of uh, element from that game is, is, is important um, in the evolution of football. Yeah, and the fact you have cabinet cards from, from those players is just incredible. Awesome. You've got to complete that set, though. You need all the Princeton and all the Rutgers players, right? Is that your goal? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think a, uh, a Rutgers in, image has come to market in, in, you know, that I've seen. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but to find anything from the 1870s, let alone the 1860s, from Rutgers is, like, impossible. I only know, like, one Rutgers image um, in the 1880s. So, I mean, have you seen anything come to market, Jeff? No. Mm-mm. Well, um, my eBay search, like but not that it would show up in eBay necessarily, but uh, I don't think that search has ever hit anything other than, you know, they had reunions, you know, what, 50 years later yep. or whatever. Yep. And you occasionally you'll see one of those images pop up um, from the reunions that they had, but other than that, nothing. Well, I, I know that this is really, um, really OD, really out there, but, um, you know, I think, I think to, to try to have, you know, some type of, of uh, images from the players and the, um, the Rutgers players um, would be cool. So Princeton played Rutgers. Uh, they played at Rutgers the first game. It was a two-game series. It was supposed to be three games, but um, it ended up just being two. Um, because of the, the Princeton uh, uh, fathers, they said, hey, we don't want our, our players 
you know, they, they're supposed to be, you know, dealing with their schoolwork. They're not supposed to be traveling to play football. But Princeton went to Rutgers. They agreed to Rutgers rules, was more, which was more of a soccer-style game, can't carry the ball, can't touch the ball. And I think Rutgers beat them 6-4, to four, something like that. And then um, mm-hmm. you know, within a few days, they went back to, um, to Princeton. So Rutgers guys were smaller. Um, they were quick. They were agile. So that game kind of, um, uh, um, you know, met their style. And then the, the Princeton players, they were, they were bigger. They were, they were um, more lumbering. And they played a game where you could hit the ball with your hand. You could advance it forward, sideways, backwards. You could catch it and no interference to kick the ball. So back in the day, you could kick the ball almost the, the length of the field to score a goal. So, mm-hmm. so Princeton won the second game, I believe it was, uh, I don't know, six to, six to nothing or something. So, okay. Yeah, I um, remember that Rutgers <laughs> changed its strategy, didn't they, during the first game? Weren't they struggling and made some adjustments based on the rules or or – I seem to remember a discussion about some adjustments that were made in game by one or more well, of the Princeton teams based to, on the rules. Yeah, Princeton tried to bully them with their brawn, and and uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, Princeton tried to kind of corral the ball, and Rutgers was much quicker, and they made better passes. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's there's other nuances there that I'm just not picking up on what you're saying, but I'm sure you're right, Jeff. Okay, um, kind of staying within the um, – no, move, moving ahead to the Intercollegiate Football Association period, you, you can't talk about 19th century football without mentioning Walter Camp. Um, and I know he's near and dear to your heart too, Jeff. Um, I'm standing in front of a 8-by-10 um, um, cabinet of the Yale football team, the 1876 Yale football team. Um, seated in the center is the captain, the father of Yale football, Gene Baker. On his lap, there is just a ginormous ball. Almost looks like a basketball, but it does have a slight egg shape to it. It's a rugby ball, and across the front it says champions. Um, up above, standing in the back row, to um, Baker's right shoulder is Chauncey Camp, the cousin of Walter Camp, and Walter Camp. So this is kind of like Walter Camp's rookie card. It's his freshman year at Yale. Yale won the championship, um, and it was kind of kind of interesting on a on a on a very uh, controversial play. And I, I know you you're, you're ready to chime in. Um, also in this photograph is O.D. Thompson. I think it's Oliver David Thompson. He was a great rower, um, but he also played on the football team. There was one play where Camp was running in for a score. He was running down the field. He's being tackled, and he throws the ball forward to Thompson. Thompson catches it and runs for a touchdown. Um, And there was a lot of controversy. Princeton stopped play. They contested the play, and I guess the rules that they agreed on, um, uh, it it was kind of vague, and and it went to a coin toss. Um, Yale won the coin toss in the first forward pass occurred in 1876. I think it's a, a neat side story. Am I telling that right, Jeff? Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, it's great trivia, right? Mm-hmm. Who threw the first first <laughs> legal pass in in football history? <laughs> um, yeah, that's an awesome story. And a, and a coin flip, since the, the ref couldn't decide what the 
<laughs> the correct interpretation. It's kind of interesting, though, that I can't recall if there was tightening of the rules after that um, to thwart that behavior or what happened thereafter. But obviously, the forward pass didn't really catch on then until sure. right, you know, yeah. the 1900s when the no, rules started to, to change. Yeah. Um, I think you have a program from that game, the Harvard-Yale game, 1876. I do, too. Mine's not in great shape. I think yours is in really good shape. Yeah, and so so many classic players in there that you just mentioned. You know, Camp there, and his. he said, I think it's his cousin, right? Not versus yeah. his brother, younger brother, cousin. O.D. Thompson, of course, played pro, you know, for a while. He's one of the early pros, you know, that, that pops up in the some of the – Annals of pro football, and there's just some great, great names on, on those teams. Baker, of course, is there. Just uh, awesome stuff. Okay, well, I'm going to stay in that period, and I'm going to talk about Lamar's run. Maybe some people have heard of Poe's run, a run that Arthur Poe. Um, Mm-hmm. succeeded in to, to beat Yale in the waning minutes. I don't know, was it 1898 or 1899? Lamar's right. run occurred in 1885. So um, uh, a lot of the uh, newspaper writers uh, of the day said it was the most exciting moment in college football up to that point. So I'm standing in front of uh, an imperial cabinet, a team photograph of, on, on um, like a hard back backing um, it's a pock image, um, and it's got all the football players from 1885. And the captain of the team, um, Charlie D. Camp, is holding the ball, and, it's, and the, along the ball it says, Champions 1885. Um, along with this imperial cabinet, I've got 14 individual player cabinets, and they're in uniform, um, all the players on the team. And I, I know this isn't the earliest kind of team set per se, um, uh, but I, it might be one of the most complete team sets. I know there's I know there's images of Yale players from the 1880s, the early 1880s. But if anybody has a complete set, so uh, you know I really love so Fox Brothers, the photographers. Um, they were the photographers of the um, Ivies and Army and Navy. Um, but they had a way of taking a picture and making these little guys. They were little guys, especially in today's standards, and making them look bigger than life. They, they took these photographs to make these guys look like heroes. Um, and, you know, featured in this would be a, a young uh, Hector Cowan. Um, uh, I already mentioned Charlie D. Camp, um, but also here, is a cabinet, individual cabinet, and in the team cabinet, Tilly Lamar. The captain and the running back, Lamar, they are standing next to um, a totem. And this totem ends up being a Revolutionary War cannon that buried on Princeton's campus behind Nassau Hall. So it's still there to the day. But, but the game was so important to Princeton, they won the national championship. They hadn't beat Yale since 1878. You can just feel in these images, you can feel the college pride. You can feel that this was a big moment um, back in the day. So basically Tilly Lamar was the great running back for um, Princeton. Yale um, 
had him stymied the whole game. They scouted him well. I think he gained like a maximum of three or four yards in any given play. Uh, Yale has the ball on Princeton. Uh, I'm sorry, on Yale's 40-yard line, and it's it's kind of like a fourth-down situation. It's less than two minutes. They decide to bury the ball deep in um, Princeton's field, and they punt the ball. The three backs are back: Lamar, um, Savage, and um, uh, for, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget here. Um, anyway, they punt the ball to the three back, and they're lined up kind of one side of the sideline, the other side of the sideline, and in the center. And it goes to Toller um, away from Lamar. It caroms off of Toller's shoulder across the field, and Lamar picks it up on a dead run. So most of the Yale players wow. had surrounded, had run to Toller, so there was only two players left that could have possibly tackled Lamar. This is the waning, waning seconds of the game, and um, it's Harry Beecher and Captain Peters. So Beecher and Peters are chasing Lamar down the field. Beecher's about to close on him, and Lamar just makes a move towards the center of the field and then back down the sidelines. And Beecher, he, he was a young player. He basically does a cartwheel. He, 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 he just totally stumbles. And um, uh, because he did that, he had to change Peters' trajectory, and, and Lamar made it to the end zone. Um, they kicked the extra point, and they, they beat Yale 6-5. to five. So the cool things about this, the significant thing about this is this was the first national championship game on a campus. It was on Yale's campus. A lot of the people that were there, they thought Princeton had lost. So a lot of Princeton faithful left angry. Yale faithful left happy thinking the game was over. And they read the next day in the paper. It was an amazing comeback, and, and Princeton won. The people that were there, the Princeton fans that were there, they rushed the field, and they basically stripped Lamar naked. They, they tore his jersey, his, uh, his uh, shirt off, and they tore it up. And, and there's written reports where his um, jersey, his uh, pieces of his jersey and his, and his T-shirt are in scrapbooks. I've never seen or heard of one, mm-hmm. but I'm on the lookout for a scrapbook that would have a piece wow. of Tilly Lamar's um, a jersey. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Today that would have all ended up on eBay, right? <laughs> His whole well, uniform in, in tatters. Right. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, yeah, it'd be, it'd be slabbed, you know. So yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, that's a pretty um, iconic that's moment pretty cool. in nineteenth century football, and. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm honored to have the opportunity to share that with you guys. Yeah, I noticed right up front of your collection there. I love those photos, the Jim Robinson, um, you know, the trainer, and you you sold me your double of that image. I love that that particular yeah. image of Robinson and the story around him and the team. That's that well, he out was like the beloved. He's he's kind of like the beloved. Um, a father figure, trainer, coach. Um, he, 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 there was no coach back in the day. The, the, the players were the coach. Um, but anyway, um, there's a little card at Robinson's foot, and it says, it says trot up. And if, if you're familiar with the book uh, Football Days by William uh, Edwards, by Bill Edwards, Big Bill Edwards, he wrote about his beloved trainer, and um, that trot up was uh, – uh, Edwards was a horse trainer um, before he was a people trainer and athletic trainer. And the trot up, and that was just his battle cry. He would just stand on the sidelines and try to get the boys, you know, get them going. And he would yell trot up. So 
if you didn't know what that card meant, you you know, it it, it just it just adds more um, interest to the to the image. Yeah, no, that's that's a great story. I love that story. And it really adds context to that picture. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, okay, where am I with things? Okay, so you can't have a 19th century football collection and not talk about the Flying Wedge. Um, so the Flying Wedge was a kind of a culmination of all these different mass plays. I think these mass plays started around, oh, 1884 with the V-trick, um, I think, one of the players at Princeton uh, used it, and he was a, um, uh, a student of military um, – um, uh, 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 what's, what's what I'm looking for? Um, military tactics, you know. Um, but, you know, later on in the 19th century, they did other mass plays like the horse neck or the flying interference. Uh, the flying interference was, was a play ran by Yale, and Heffelfinger was, uh, was the lineman that would pull. So basic mass plays means – I'm going to take, you know, seven or eight of my biggest guys, my beef, and I'm going to run them at your weakest point in the line. I'm going to try to open up the line so the back can get through. So that's kind of the theory behind the mass plays. So I'm standing in front of a letter um, written by the inventor or the father of the flying wedge, Lauren Dillon. Um, I've not seen another signature of his, but this has football content. So I like it because it's not like a signed check or, or a signed letter to Aunt Millie. Um, he is um, coming home. Uh, he is writing a letter, hey, I just finished help, co- help coaching the Yale 11. So this is a period right around 1896-97 where him and Walter Camp are collaborating on a book called Football. So um, uh, it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them story. So um, – in 1892, uh, Harvard unveiled the flying wedge against Yale in a failed attempt to beat them. They lost the game six to nothing. But, um, you know, for, for, for the listeners, uh, the flying wedge was basically um, the quarterback was, in the, was in the, at the 45-yard line kind of in a position to kick the ball off or start the play. And five players were lined up to his right. Five players were lined up to his left. And they all took a, a running start and they converged in a V shape at the ball. And the second that they kind of met, then the quarterback snapped the ball or put the ball in play, maybe kicked it with his foot. Um, It went to one of the players, and the player um, flipped it to the running back. I think it was Brewer. And they advanced down the field. I think it was at um, the player, I think his name was Wallace. They advanced at the weakest link in, in Yale's line, and they they moved the ball to the 20 yard line and Harvard papers Harvard newspapers after the game basically said if Brewer hadn't flipped it would have gone for a touchdown. Um, they actually didn't score on that, but the the the, the point of that is um, after they unveiled that flying wedge, every team in the country was doing it the following season, and then that's when a lot of the the injuries um, really really mounted and you know re- caused even deaths. So. Um, uh, you know, to, to ha- you can't have a 19th century collection without, you know, talking about Lauren Dillon and the Flying Wedge. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of Frank Hinkie. You know, I know, I know there's stuff written about him and, you know, his disregard for his body. <laughs> he was a small guy, but what, <laughs> what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is he used to, I mean, he would just, like, dive over top, dive in the middle, I and mean, he would do almost anything 
to break up some sort of play like that if he could. Yeah, the only way to defeat it was to jump on top of the guys. You're right. And you had yeah. to have a disregard for your body. You're right. Yep. Yeah. And there, there are reports where um, Heffelfinger, to break up these type of mass plays, I mean, he would almost cannonball at the mm. – he would dive in the air and he would like – he would go knees first at these guys to break up the play like a bowling ball, you know. So mm. um, uh, pretty dangerous. Yeah. I kind of want to uh, wonder what you think of. So today it seems like the trend of the NFL is like when you're close to the goal line, the running back gets the ball, and then everybody behind him like grabs him and tries to push him into the end zone. And uh, it almost seems like the inverse of the flying wedge. It's right? like the ball yeah. carriers in the front, and everybody's behind them like pushing and grabbing and dragging. Um, I just wonder how long they're going to yeah. let that occur you know that just seems to me like we're going back to this kind of behavior you know i can't believe somebody hasn't been rolled up on on and torn like an acl or you know hit a really bad injury because you see guys go down when they're pushing like that Mm -hmm. you're right yeah um that's a good uh good connection there how am i doing on time can i can i mention one other kind of a and b here bob how are we doing? Yep. We're almost uh, we're down to six minutes. Okay. So All right. So I, I have a program here. Um, I have a program here and a ticket stub. It's um, Harvard versus UPenn. And this program relates to William Henry Lewis. So um, first uh, African-American, all-American, um, first black coach. Um, uh, he, was, he was definitely a pioneer um, in the uh, early 1890s. Um, he was a very honorable guy. He was much maligned, um, attacked many different ways, and, he, and he, he kept his head up and kept moving forward. So um, in the Yale-Harvard game in 1893, uh, the captain of the team, Waters, was injured, and they had to play UPenn five days later. And they had to find somebody to run the, the team, and they went to Marshall Newell. And Newell was always kind of the reluctant warrior. He declined, but he suggested that um, William Henry Lewis be the captain. And he was actually the captain of the team his last two seasons when he played at Amherst. So this wasn't a new position for him. So he uh, ran the drills in practice, um, and the reporters of the day reported, hey, this looks like a different team. There's a lot of pep. There's a, there's a lot of organization. Um, and sure enough, that, that pluck, they beat UPenn, I don't know, I think, I think it was like something like 26 to 4. But the significant thing about this program is um, you can see in the program where Captain Waters is kind of removed or scratched out, injured, um, and the, the word captain is written next to William Henry Lewis. And to me, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing, you know, in Harvard history, in um, uh, history of 19th century football. The other item that I have of William Henry Lewis, which I have a few, um, is a book that he published. It's called A Primer of College Football. And it's signed by him, and it's dedicated to uh, kind of like the equivalent of the athletic director, um, at Harvard, uh, his last name was White. Um, but the great thing about that book is there's like 22 photo plates of 
William Henry Lewis doing different moves. So this is a book of Primer College Football, you know, how to play the game back then, strategies, offense, defense. But to have, you know, 20 images of, of William Henry Lewis doing certain football moves is, is really, really cool. I know that's a rare book. I, I haven't seen many, if any. I think there's one in the College Football Hall of Fame, and that's kind of where I found out about that ball and how where I found out about that book and how I wanted to get that book. Wow. That's Do you amazing. have a cabinet card of William Henry Lewis? Uh, Say that again. Card? Do you no, have a cabinet card of, of him? I do not. Um, I'd love to have one. Um, I've got plenty of images, uh, images in um, kind of programs, but I don't have any, and I don't have a cabinet card of him. Yeah, there's always some things that you regret not bidding on or missing on. Before I really understood his significance in the 1800s. I was just starting to dabble in that area. I know a cabinet card of his came up on eBay. And I Googled it, looked at it. I was like, wow, this guy looks like he's kind of important. Kind of half-heartedly bid on it, got blown away. And I always regret that because, you know, every time his name comes up, I think, oh, my gosh, what was I doing? (laughs) What was I thinking? This this guy is iconic. (laughs) Totally missed on yeah. I've never seen it. I don't know who has it, but uh, there was one floating around. We we all have those stories, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, thankfully, there's always something around the corner the next day to take our money. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I always tell <laughs> I always tell people when they miss something, you know, don't worry. You know, it'll either another one will roll around, even if you haven't seen it for a decade, or something else you really want will roll around. So just be patient. You know. Yeah. Hey, we got we got we're down to two minutes, so Jen. Um, I hate to do this. Final thoughts, final comments. Uh, we're only halfway through the script, so yeah. that's, that's truly yeah. amazing. Well, what you, you know, what you got here. I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I'm sad that I didn't, I didn't get to touch on the four Poe brothers. I didn't get to touch on the bloodbath game, uh, national championship uh, trophies, uh, the rise of UPenn. Um, the four all-American, four-time all-Americans from the 19th century. So, you know, there, there's a lot more content that I'd be happy to share with you guys. Maybe, maybe we'll do that on a rainy day. We'll just talk to each other. So, well, I think you know, anytime you want to come back on, uh, I'm more than <laughs> happy to have you back on and talk because it's, it's just incredible. It's the history of the, the early game of football. I mean, it's just truly amazing to me. Truly amazing. Yeah. All right, we got we're down about a minute, uh, John. I hate to do it, but thanks for being on. And, thanks, John. I got to wrap things up here. And thanks hopefully, I do want you back on and finish up what you were talking about before uh, that was left over from this program. Uh, I have no two-minute warning. We're pretty much out of time. Check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Jeff, in ten seconds, what'd you pick up on tonight's show? Iconic items for iconic periods in time. I love the way John collects. It's so cool. I'll leave it at that. It's just living history of the game. It's incredible. Truly incredible. Blows my mind. Just uh, And again, real quick, over the years, the collections I've, I've viewed both uh, online and in person from people uh, just, just amazes me, truly amazes me. We're out of time. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week uh, with another show.